Good afternoon. We're going to go ahead and get started with our third panel. If everyone can please have a seat. So welcome back. Um, I'm Crystal Appia, the Instruction Librarian for Special Collections uh, here at UVA. And uh, for those of you who weren't here in the morning, we did have a change of lineup in our panel. Uh, Aisha Heichel went ahead and uh, presented this morning. And our first speaker for this panel is going to be Samip Malik. Uh, Samip is the co-founder and executive director of the South Asian American Digital Archive, or SADA, the only organization that digitally documents, preserves, and shares stories of South Asian Americans. Working at the intersection of technology and storytelling, Malik has a bachelor's degree in computer science from the University of Michigan and a master's degree in library and information sciences from the University of Illinois. He was previously the director of the Ranganathan Center for Digital Information at the University of Chicago Library. Our next speaker will be Johan Kugelberg, who is the founder of Buhare, which to date has placed over 120 significant cultural archives with museums and university libraries. He is taught at Yale and Cornell and is a faculty member at Rare Book School, where he teaches a yearly class. He's the author and editor of numerous books on subculture topics and regularly curates exhibits in museums and galleries around the world. And our final speaker will be Brian Weimer, who is a filmmaker living in Charlottesville. He has directed and produced 12 feature films, including Claw, the collective of lady arm wrestlers, and Pyrometheus. His latest film, Charlottesville, Our Streets, is an objective chronicle of the alt-right rally on August 12, 2017 in Charlottesville composed of 40 interviews with eyewitnesses and compiling media from 20 sources. He's also co-founder of the Ix Art Park in Charlottesville, for which he currently serves as resident wizard. So we're going to go ahead and start with some... Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm going to see if I'm here, if that's okay. I'm short, so these podiums always all the time. So yeah, as Crystal mentioned, my name is Samit Malik. I'm the co-founder and executive director of the South Asian American Digital Archive. Um, before I get started, I just want to thank Danielle and, and everyone else, um, Barbara, Holly, Crystal, everyone who um, both invited me to be here, but then also made such accommodations um, for me to be part of the panel. As you probably heard, I had some flight mishaps on the way here from Philadelphia, so I'm um, really glad to be here. I also want to thank Aisha for making space for me uh, on this panel um, and going this morning in that place. Um, so SADA is a national nonprofit organization based in Philadelphia, which is also where I live. Um, but an organization that works to give voice to South Asian Americans by documenting, preserving, and sharing stories that reflect our community's unique and diverse experiences. So in my presentation today, I'll do two things. One is to give you some background on the organization and the work that we do, but the other is to talk more specifically about impact and how it is that as an organization we think about the impact of the work that we do. Um, but I'll start by giving you a little bit of context on the community that we serve. So um, if you, our, our archive works to collect stories from those in the U.S. who trace their heritage to Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, Maldives, Nepal, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and the many South Asian diaspora communities around the globe. Um, so by that, what we mean are those who come from perhaps secondary migration or tertiary migration to the Caribbean islands or Guyana or South Africa, UK, etc. If you do the math, you see that um, there are 3.4 million individuals in the U.S. who trace their heritage to South Asia. Uh, it's actually South Asian Americans in the fastest growing immigrant community in the country in percentage terms. Between 2000 and 2010, the community grew by 81%. And uh, if you do the math, you see that one in every 100 Americans traces their heritage to South Asia. In fact, these numbers are somewhat outdated. Um, the latest census, of course, was in 2010, the next one was in 2020. So now I think the latest enumerations are that there are more than 4.3 million South Asians in the country. 
But to understand a little bit about the community, it's, of course, critical to understand a little bit about the community's history. South Asians began arriving in the United States in larger numbers beginning in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And those who came here at that time were coming primarily to work as laborers. So they were coming um, to work on farms and fields, lumber yards, mills, etc. And they're coming primarily from the Punjab region of British India. India was still, of course, then a British colony, and settling on the west coast of the United States, in California, Oregon, Washington State, as well as in uh, British Columbia, Canada. There were smaller numbers of individuals who were able to come for other reasons. So um, this is a photograph from 1914 of members of the Illinois chapter of the Hindustan Association of America. This is an organization that helped acclimate students who were coming um, from South Asia, from India, to buy from the United States. There are very, very few South Asian women who were allowed into the country in those early years of immigration from South Asia. This is a newspaper clipping from 1915 describing the arrival of one of the very few South Asian women in the country at that time, her name is Halo Badai. Um, but as you can see, this newspaper article ignores her and talks about her nose ring. It says, Nose Diamond, latest ad, arrives here from India. But the reality for those early immigrants was that there was incredible opposition to their presence here in the United States, incredible xenophobia, racism targeted, targeting South Asians and Asians more broadly. This is an article, a newspaper article from around that time, as you can see titled, Our First Invasion by Hindus and Mohammedans. And another title, Have We Adjusted Peril, Hindu Hordes Invading the State. This newspaper article was published in Bellingham, Washington, a small town in Washington, uh, where a group of Punjabi laborers had settled and worked and were working lumberyards there. And actually, just a few days after this article was published, there was a race riot, what we now call the Bellingham Riot, where the group of Punjabi laborers were violently chased out of town by a, a group of white men. And, and there were also other kinds of legislation. Um, there were um, judicial decisions in place that helped to either implicitly or explicitly exclude South Asians from coming to the United States. And then finally, what happened in 1923 was there was a Supreme Court ruling, uh, United States v. Puget Saint Pen, where it was decided unanimous, unanimously, unanimously by the Supreme Court that South Asians should be barred from becoming American citizens. This is a magazine article describing that Supreme Court decision titled Hindus Through Internet to Vote Here. And there's a photograph of a South Asian man with a caption that simply reads, quote, unquote, the problem. So that gives you a sense of the ethos of the country at that time. <clears throat> so I'll talk a little bit more about more recent immigration, but the work that Saad has been doing now for the last 10 years is to collect these stories um, of immigrants, of life, of immigrant life in the United States, of South Asians, and make them accessible to everyone um, through our website and through the work that we do. This is a screenshot of our website. Um, I'll give you all the end of the presentation, which I invite you to visit. But what's unique about our approach to doing this work is that Sada is what's called a post-custodial and digital-only archive. And what that means um, is that we're not seeking physical custody over any materials, but instead work closely with community members, community organizations, other archival institutions, and repositories, and use the power of the digital medium to provide access to and digitally preserve materials, allowing the originals to remain whatever happened. So I'll turn now to just share with you one story from the archive. And through this story, I try to give you a sense of the incredible richness and diversity of South Asian American history, but also through the story, beginning to give you a sense of how it is that we go about doing this work of collecting these stories and how we think about their impact. And that's the story of someone named Dalip Singh Song. This is a portrait of Dalip Song. He was born in the late 1800s in the Punjab region of British India, so the same region that was the home for many of the early immigrants from South Asia. And though Dalip Song, um, his parents had in a way received a formal education. But they did well for themselves financially in agriculture and business in this village where Philip Song grew up with his siblings. And so even though the parents hadn't received an education formally, they were able to support their own children, Philip Song and his siblings, in pursuing their further studies. So he did an undergraduate degree in mathematics at a university in Punjab. And then in 1920, he had his opportunity to come to the United States to pursue his graduate studies at the University of California, Berkeley. 
Initially, his plan was that he was going to study agriculture. He was going to study fruit canning, actually, so he could go back to India and support his family in the, in the business. But soon after arriving in Berkeley, he realized that his true love was for mathematics. He couldn't give that up. So he changed his major. And just four years after arriving in Berkeley in 1924, he graduated having completed both a master's and a PhD. But as I mentioned, just a year previous to this, in 1923, the Supreme Court had ruled unanimously to bar salvation from becoming American citizens. And so, of course, that meant a year later that Dalai Lama couldn't become an American citizen. And also because of local legislation in California, he couldn't own property, he couldn't marry outside of his race. And most pertinent and important to him at that very moment, it meant that he couldn't get a teaching job in his chosen profession in mathematics, despite being so highly qualified and having a PhD. So instead, what Dalai Lama did was move to Southern California and begin working as a farmer. He did lettuce farming and other kinds of farming for the next 20 plus years, but all while continuing to be involved in community organizing work and really engaged in, in trying to support the South Asian community as small as it was here in the United States at that point. Finally, after years and years of campaigning in 1946 um, by the community, South Asians were again allowed to become American citizens after more than 20 years of exclusion. And shortly after, Dalai Lama decided he was going to run for, he was going to become a citizen and then he was going to run for local office. So he ran for judgeship in the small town where he lived in California, and to his surprise, he was elected. And then a few years later, he decided he wasn't going to stop there, he was going to run for Congress. So in 1956, Dalai Lama was elected to Congress, becoming the first, not just South Asian American, but the first Asian American elected to national office in this country. I'm going to play for you now a short clip, just a couple minutes long, of an interview that was conducted with Congressman Sanda in 1959. And in this interview, so this is, he's been in office for three years now, He's asked about how it is that he came from such humble beginnings growing up in a small village in Punjab to becoming a U.S. congressperson. And this is his response. Now, there's a little question. I have settled in a little country since 1926 as a father. I was a PhD in mathematics because I could not become a citizen of the United States. I could not fight a teaching job, but I was satisfied as a father in the field that the only way I could make living. While I was fatherly, I never let my interest in national and international affairs slow down. I was always interested in American political life. When I became a citizen of the United States on December 16, 1949, it was my ambition to run for public office. I ran for the office of Judge of the Justice Court of the small town where I had lived for 25 years. Everyone thought that I had no chance. It was not possible for the Hindu to the United Church. But I had faith in the American sense of justice and fairness. I carried a hard Then I'm not allowed to sit because I'm not in the city of the United States for one year. And I had a year in 1952, and I served at the Justice Court for four years. In the meantime, in 1954, I have been elected as county chairman of the Democratic Central Committee of the Council of the Then I had the opportunity to help in the campaign of the Democratic nominee for Congress in 1954. I became intrigued with that book. Then in 1956, I amazed everybody and announced my appearance 
One project that we launched a few years ago is called First Days Project. And this project, we collect stories from immigrants and refugees about their first experiences in the country. This is something that we have actually collected more than 450 stories so far. And these stories actually, we have a lot of stories from anyone from any part of the world who's come here for any reason at any time. And these stories really, you know, these massive stories, you get a sense of the uh, experience, what it's like to leave behind everything that's familiar and come to a new place and make that your home. So I'm going to play for you a short clip of one of the storytellers. His name is Ali Katao. He came from, uh, from Lahore in Pakistan to Fayetteville, Arkansas, in 1980, 21 years old, to go to school and to go to college. And this is his, a short clip of the story about his first day. Uh, the first day when I arrived was, I don't know what to say, but it was, uh, it was very, uh, uh, you know, unique. Uh, you, you don't have people that you have been growing up with, your friends, your parents, your sister, your brother. And then you come over and then suddenly it's a different environment and you don't have any friends. I mean, zero. Zilch. You're starting with a black place. And, uh, and I'm very, I feel very, very busy and all that. But that was the loneliness was the number one. I feel if you want me to put it all in one word, initially the first day was loneliness because you have, you don't have anybody to calm down. You don't have, you don't own black or bottom. You don't know if they're going to give you the right stuff. It was very interesting. It was, it was different. With uh, I think uh, uh, helpless and loneliness were two words that I would put the experience into the first day. Now, now, after you know, after a month, oh my God, I was a party animal. <laughs> <laughs> Another project that I want to highlight is one that we launched last year called the Road Trips Project. For this, we were really inspired by thinking about two things. One was that in February 2017, um, an Indian immigrant in Kansas was murdered by a white in a bar, he's having a drink after work with a friend of his. And um, his name is Shreem about Spucci Bozla. And right just before he was shot, um, this person said to Shreem about Spucci Bozla, go back to your country. And just a couple months after that, in a town in Washington State, a Sikh man was washing his car in his driveway, and a masked person walked by and shot him, saying a very same thing, go back to your country. So this is a refrain that we hear again and again, particularly during the months directed that people of color, immigrants of color in particular, um, and certainly in South Asian Americans. Hate violence has been happening, as I you know, mentioned, about Ryan right, for more than 100 years. The other thing that we're thinking about is about imagery of the open road, and how the road trip is such a powerful way of how we think of our country and the possibility of just getting your car and driving across the country, and what it means for people of color to not feel safe to be able to do that. So what we did is to try to flip that on its head by collecting and sharing stories and images of South Asians traveling across the country on road trips. Uh, this is a map that shows routes that people who submitted their stories have collected about 100 so far, um, traveled as, as they went across the country. Here are some of the photographs as you can see, and I won't get to talk about these in detail, but these, these stories are really incredible in the ways that they touch both on individual memories, but collect, connect those memories to what's happening in the country today. And a final project that I'll highlight is one called Where We Belong Artists in the Archive, another project last year as well. One where we worked with five contemporary South Asian American artists who reimagined and remixed materials from Zada's archive to create more artistic works. Uh, one, one piece I want to highlight is that of Zane Alam. He's a young musician based in New York and Boston. And he was really um, drawn to his home movie, his home movie footage he had in Zada, of Charity Singular, the person you see on the right here, who immigrated to Oklahoma in 1959. So Zane Alam um, grew up outside of Atlanta. He was a child of Pakistani Muslim immigrants. And so obviously his upbringing, his life is very, very different than that of Charity but in these silent home movies, he saw something of his own childhood reflected in them. And also, I think he was taken by how unusual it was to see 
home movie footage, moving image footage of Indian immigrants uh, in Oklahoma called Place in the And so what Zane did was just um, edit this home movie footage together, create a soundtrack to it, and then juxtapose more contemporary newsreel footage with it. I'll just play a very short clip, a one minute clip uh, of that for you to see what it looks like. See if this one works. Uh, my name is Johann Kugelberg. I'm a first generation immigrant. I moved here 30 years ago. And uh, my first uh, story on visiting to New York, uh, uh, arriving in New York, was that I thought I was pretty good at basketball. So I went to the courts on 6th Avenue and 4th Street to do a uh, pickup street ball game and got hit in the head with a ball four or five times in 20 minutes. But a week later, you know, I'm thinking that I'm pretty good at chess. So I go to Washington Square Park uh, to play a couple of rounds of Blitz, and I get plucked by, uh, uh, $50 in 1989 money by a 12-year-old uh, Latino. After that, I realized that I should probably try to live in New York City for the rest of my life, and uh, I've been working on that ever since. Um, after coming to New York, I ended up becoming a record executive and a music writer. And uh, as we know, we know what digital does to archiving, and we're happy about that. 
But the opposite of that is what digital did to the music business. None of us got salaries anymore after around the year 2000. So uh, I actually had the opportunity to, through a chain of curious events, uh, reinvent myself professionally. Uh, I sponsored a kid who had some pretty severe addiction problems, and the only thing that he was really interested in, except for heroin, was hip-hop. And uh, I knew very little about hip-hop. I had grown up in skateboarding and punk rock and nerdy science fiction paperbacks. But hip-hop was a mystery to me, even though I've always had felt a very strong affinity for the art form. So uh, Taylor basically introduced me to the very early formative years of hip-hop culture. And I, you know, I have OCD on this shoulder, I have ADD on this shoulder. We can choose which one is the angel, which one is the devil. Uh, sometimes they talk. So I wanted to learn as much as I could immediately on the formative years of hip-hop culture. And I discovered that there was very little out there at that point. There were some rudimentary websites. Uh, there had been an exceptional uh, museum quality exhibition in Seattle at the Experience Music Project, and there was a publication. There's been like a smattering of scholarly music anthologies reissuing materials. But the thing that was shocking to me was that as of yet, there was no serious institutional collecting presence in preserving this narrative. Um, and this is, I guess, about a little bit less than 20 years ago. I got hyper-fascinated in how universities and museums treat contemporary popular culture, subculture, and alternative culture. So I also started to research the relationships between contemporary subcultures and institutional collecting and how that worked. And with hip-hop, I realized that the time to establish a significant archive on the history of hip-hop culture wasn't five years from now or two years from now. It was now. It was like this minute. It was before stuff ended up in dumpsters, before people got kicked out of their apartments, before people went broke and sold all of their old photographs or whatever it was. It was now. I knew quite a lot through my past in the record business about the nightmarish horrors that have happened in the history of African-American blues, African-American jazz, the history of Latin music. There's the worst horror stories. You know, it was 90 hours of perfectly recorded John Coltrane uh, got lost in a dumpster in the early 1990s because somebody at some record company had forgotten to pay a storage bill. And that's how bad it can get. So I basically started from scratch building this hip-hop archive. And I did it with the sole purpose of having it be a foundation archive for an academic institution. And I spent a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of research doing this. And I actually had the best possible nickname uptown in the Bronx and Mount Vernon and Co-op City. I was known as the ATM. <laughs> I have found a bunch of old flyers. I'm going to go down to the ATM and cash them in. Uh, I have my late brother's photo album. I'm going to go to the ATM and cash that in. So 
the reason that this was important, and of course I got receipts from everybody, and when I could I would get oral histories and so forth, um, the important thing about this and the reputation as the ATM was when it comes to a culture that is ruled, you know, face it, ruled uptown by the dictatorship of the new, that it's always about box fresh and new ideas and the next big thing and the next dance or the next DJ or the next MC, uh, the historical remains will unfortunately quite often fall by the wayside. So what was very good with this relationship was that I was always clear with everybody that ultimately this is going to be a collection that is going to be held by a major academic library. And you know, luckily for me, I managed to pull that off, but the, the, I'll get to that later. You know, I'm, I'm 6'4", I'm Swedish, you know, I'm probably sometimes ridiculous. So at one point, uh, when my son Sam was maybe like 10 or 11 years old, a couple of hip-hop legends had been over in our apartment, and that we had had a meeting, and we were discussing their rhyme books and you know how to digitize their photographs and how to digitize some old cassettes. And then they leave my apartment and Sam walks out of his room and he looks at me and he goes like, Dad, those guys, they do not think that you're down. And I'm like, hell no. By the time they're at the elevator, they're making fun of the way I talk, the way I walk, the way I dress. But my hope is that they believe that my vision for their history is honest and that I'm treating their narrative with dignity and respect even though that narrative will never be my narrative. And Sam said, you know, all right, <laughs> went back to his room. Um, I would go up to the Bronx regularly and to Co-op City or Mount Vernon and go through old storage spaces. And I had people looking for abandoned storage space auctions. And after this had been going on for several years, I started thinking that this archive was really substantial, that it started having like a real weight to it. So uh, we produced in 2005 a uh, large museum quality exhibition in London because, of course, Great Britain were very, very early advocates of hip-hop culture. And it was great. Streets got shut down. There was breakdancing in the street. Loads of famous DJs showed up. And it was a really, really wonderful event. Uh, we repeated the same exhibition in Tokyo, in Japan, and this landed me a book deal to publish the first of, I've, I've done a lot of books over the years, I'm kind of a hack, but this was one of my very first books, was a visual history of hip-hop in the South Bronx. And then, I really was starting to try to get my foot in the door with institutional libraries. You know, it's like Gene Kelly and Singing in the Rain when he like knocks on the door and goes, gotta dance. Um, and the door got slammed in my face surprisingly and shockingly often, I must say. I went and saw pretty much all of the major research libraries and some people said that, yeah, they would take the stuff. They would take the stuff if it was free. And preferably if I wrote them like a big old check so that they could organize it on the back end and all that kind of stuff. Um, one of the most famous research libraries in the, wall, in the world, which shall remain super nameless, 
uh, wanted the archive enough to invite me up for a tour. So I went up for a tour, and I was walking in these like strange underground corridors. And then I look at like a pile of cardboard boxes sitting over on the wall on the right, and it's probably already clear what I'm like. So I get down and I start rifling through the boxes, and it's illuminated manuscript pages. Not very good ones, like really kind of dinged ones, a little bit later, like 15th, 16th century, not A-list ones, maybe not even B-list ones, but nevertheless, illuminated manuscript pages. Then I'm like, hmm, illuminated manuscript pages, hip-hop flyers and photographs and cassettes and vinyl, maybe this isn't the right fit. Maybe they're not that excited about who I am and what I actually do. And then I happened to meet uh, Catherine Reagan, the head of special collections at Cornell University, who I also teach a yearly class with at Rare Book School, uh, and uh, Anne Kenny, the head of the Cornell Library at the time. And we immediately started a dialogue about community, about symposiums, about workshops, about digital outreach. And I'm very, very happy to say that this was the perfect storm. Everything came to pass because the support of Cornell University was so genuine and so powerful. Uh, the, head of the, special, uh, the head of the Friends of the Library at the time is a super legendary rare book dealer called Stephen Lowenthal, who is one of my best friends and has mentored me for the last 10, 12 years. And he got it. This is a guy who has handled first folios, who has handled the single uh, copy and private ownership of the true first edition of Dante's Divine Comedy. He's like that guy. And the moment when I showed up at Cornell with like hip-hop records and Polaroids and flyers and cassette tapes, Stephen was like, this is great. We have to do this. We have to have it. And we have to support it. And the way that he quote-unquote sold it to the rest of the university was contextualizing with the history of country blues and urban blues, the history of New Orleans jazz, the history of big band jazz, post-war R&B, civil rights, black power, African-American cultural identity, and then hip-hop. And what Stephen furthermore realized was that hip-hop was maybe even more ephemeral than these other materials. Because as we know, the culture did come from around the same five city blocks in the most broken, broke part of the Bronx. Transient living, a culture that was ruled by the dictatorship of the, of the new, and a culture that was about Saturday night. And when Saturday night hit, nobody remembered last Saturday night. Nobody remembered who performed because it was next Saturday night. It was about box fresh and new. So the support was absolutely extraordinary. Um, Hip-hop is truly fascinating because of this. The, the founding fathers consisted of fewer than like 100 people in about two different neighborhoods in the South Bronx, spanning maybe 10 blocks. And then this culture, 40, 45, 50 years later, functions simultaneously as global grassroots activism. 
You know, you go to any town in the world with more than 50,000 people in it, people will be making their own clothes. They will creating, be creating their own breakbeats. They will be emceeing. They will be painting graffiti. They will be performing. They will be dancing. And, you know, on the flip side of that, it's also abject, mainstream, terrible music. And there's no contradiction between the two. So, documenting these kind of narratives for scholars, academics, and fanboys and fangirls to utilize is the work that I do with Bouhray. And I wear several hats. Bouhray is, you know, I, I often say that we're like too broke to be a non-profit. We're like a non-profit, a no-ne profit. Um, but we organize, we have organized and placed around 120 cultural archives, you know, ranging in selling price from nothing to a couple of million dollars. And we have developed relationships with a variety of special collections, librarians and scholars and professors and academics and all kinds of absolutely wonderful, super cool people who I truly feel are on the front line for a democratization of cultural narratives that I think is happening in real time. And when we're at our most depressed about current events or about you know people staring at their smartphones or what's going to happen to culture that's born digital, I think that we should still focus on how how lucky we are that things survive. I can be ultra bummed out about the 90 hours of lost young culture. I am ultra bummed out about that. But then I got a call from an old record executive about a year and a half ago, and he was like, oh yeah, we just found 50 hours of Coltrane. And that was how that uh, amazing Coltrane reissue from 63 that just came out a few months ago actually germinated. Um, Bouvray acts as a active and immediate middleman. And it's unbelievably fun work and sometimes unbelievably strenuous work. A few years ago, I got a call from the founder of the Living Theater, Judith Molina. This was four days before the Living Theater, which was a radical anarchist theater group that formed in 1946, were going to be evicted from their space on the Lower East Side. So she goes, help. So we have four days to show up and empty this basement out and do what I usually describe in my class as guerrilla archiving, where you're just trying to stabilize as much of the materials as quickly as possible and get them to a space where they're safe. Two days into this sort, Tom Walker, and also one of the founding members of the Living Theater, who, if I remember correctly, got arrested performing in the nude at the Yale Theater in 1968. He was that guy. Um, says, oh yeah, we have a storage space in Trenton, New Jersey, and I don't think we've paid rent on it for 10 years, and that's where we put all the stuff when we moved to Italy in 1978. So I'm like, oh brother, I think was the term that I used. Um, so then we actually have to hightail it to Trenton, New Jersey, and the woman who owned this storage facility, which is actually, was a space where they actually built B-52s during World War II, liked Judith. So even though they had five years of unpaid storage bills, she had let everything stay. So then we had, you know, another million documents and photographs and posters and letters to sort. 
During Occupy Wall Street, I went down there pretty much once a day. Not because I was particularly down with the proverbial kids in like a sexy grandpa kind of way, or that I necessarily agreed with everything they did or everything that they said, but I felt very, very strongly that I wanted to show solidarity with kids who did their first conscious political act in their lives. And what I could do as sexy grandpa was bring down a bag of apples or a stack of pizza pies or a roll of $20 bills to, you know, just sort of show that this is great, this is okay, this is important. But the reason I'm telling this anecdote is that the email and the text message and the phone went warm from special collection librarian friends from all over America. We're like, hey, Johan, could you pick up a few copies of the zines or maybe you could pick up a few copies of the posters and send to us or if there are any other publications or any badges or anything like that. So you can see how these things happen in real time. My friend Richard Ovenden runs the Bodleian Library at Oxford, which is arguably one of the greatest libraries in the world. A personal super fanatic fanboy interest of mine is radical anarchist thought during the English Civil War. I'm completely obsessed with it. Uh, Christian anarchism in the 16th and 17th century. I hope to write about it before I die, if I get a little bit smarter. And the Bodleian has the best collection in the world, because in the 1500s and 1600s, their librarians collected pamphlets and broadsides that were actually insulting them in real time. There's a famous uh, Christian anarchist broadside that describes Oxford and Cambridge as the two eyes of the Whore of Babylon. And Oxford and Cambridge collected these materials anyway because they knew that they were really significant items. And this is the reason that we know as much as we do about radical thought during the English Civil War. Richard is surrounded by people at the Bodleian Library who are still not sure whether the Beatles have any lasting historical importance, which is also pretty cool. A lot of my historian buddies say this one line to me quite often that goes, it's too early to say for certain. <laughs> the diaspora of the subject matter is that the people are uncertain or just as important. The people say, maybe we shouldn't collect punk rock. Maybe punk rock isn't that important. Maybe time will tell. Obviously, the downside of that is that stuff will disappear, and then it's gone. I'm grateful for these institutional libraries, all of the seed keepers who are on point and on the ball for collecting in real time. You know, this means that the materials will be preserved, and maybe the time will come for the Met to do their major hip-hop show in the year 2047, and not the year 2017. But when that happens, they can borrow the archive from Cornell. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. While I'm plugging this in, I can introduce myself. Uh, my name is Brian Weimer. I'm a local filmmaker and clown and I don't know what else. Um, apparently I'm a wizard. Um, I uh, lived in Charlottesville for about 20 years now. I used to work in advertising in New York until it stole my soul, so now I'm trying to buy it back. Um, let's see. This is going to come up here. Uh... So I worked on a project, uh, oh there it is, you can see the rest of my desktop too, it's really interesting. Um, 
that uh, it's called Charlottesville Our Streets. Um, and it wasn't my claim to say that this was the only story um, that happened. A little background um, for those of you who don't know what happened in this town. Uh, last year, uh, August 12th, uh, there was a rally um, that turned uh, deadly. And uh, at being a filmmaker here, I felt an obligation to bring my camera. I actually showed up in a straw hat um, and American flag shorts. Um, I did not wear the helmet that everybody else brought. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to find, so I just rolled my camera. And uh, as the events of the day kind of... Uh, carried out, I realized that more and more this was not your average day in Charlottesville. Um, I was about a block from uh, the accident site or the crash site. It's not an accident. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people who are down that street. Um, I'll show you just the teaser first for what this is so you know a little bit of what I'm talking about. Let's This was an attempt to tell in very real time what transpired. Right after the events, there was a lot of speculation as to what had happened. There were pundits uh, on television supposing, you know, what the intentions of different sides were. And having been here, uh, I, I felt there was an obligation to try to get the story straight. Um, so what we set out for was an objective telling, almost just a real-time timeline of the events. And a lot of people said we couldn't do it. Um, we actually were uh, aligned with the uh, Virginia Film Festival, which was in November, 
um, and they said, can you pull something together by then? So I pulled together a team. We took two months. We crunched through all the footage that we could get. We interviewed uh, 40 people who were there, um, and we premiered at the Virginia Film Festival in two months. Um, and uh, was it the objective retelling we wanted it to be? Um, I don't know. Uh, that's debatable. Uh, but I think that the important part was in this attempt to make this archival account was to remove ourselves. I mean, what's a white guy doing telling the story about this event that had so many other, that was about race, that was about religion, that was about ideologies, and was this just going to be my vision? Um, so I, I very much tried. We got a, a lot of different people on our editing staff and on our production staff who could take me to task if I wasn't being objective about it. Um, the other part was to try to break down this narrative. There's a narrative nationally about this that wanted to be very simplistic. You know, that there were two sides, it was this and that, good and bad, and it all depended upon what your own ideology was going into this as to what that narrative might be. Um, and what we discovered in looking at the footage was there were a lot of narratives going on. And so one place was to try to find corroboration between sources, between opposite sources, to find out if something really happened. One was to ask if there was either photographs or video of this thing happening. If somebody said, well, somebody got beat up over here, well, show me. Um, and in that process of, of searching for those things, we found some really interesting stories. And I'll, I've got a clip of one that I'll share with you here that illustrates that point pretty well. fascinating for me about that experience and that was an interview with a woman who's an activist here in Charlottesville and a guy who's a member of the three percenters up in Pennsylvania and they both unsolicited told, told this very same story and to me it broke down the narrative the narrative that that there was no connection between these even the point there's a whole other story about who that military guy is and what the three percenters are. Um, but that, that there was a, a moment because of this shared song, because of whatever, that here were these two different factions agreeing on something and that it was a piece of music. And at the end when they go into some of their conclusions, that guy with a hat kind of talks about 
necessity for trying to find common ground um, and that in order for this narrative to have any solutions that people do have to kind of come together and, and find a commonality. Um, the other part within this, originally we weren't going to do interviews, we were just going to show clips. And it's kind of fascinating now, everybody's got one of these. And the amount of footage that we got, and we left a lot on the cutting room floor, uh, kind of showed that there's no privacy anymore. <laughs> if, you can, if you're going to do something in public, it's going to be seen. Um, we had a notion at some point to use security camera footage, whatever. We didn't end up getting that. We didn't necessarily need that. But, um, and there's a clip that I'll show you in a moment that uh, is, is kind of fascinating because it, it's shown from about, I think, six different cameras, a particular um, moment when really things were getting bad uh, downtown. And it was, a, it was a strange place to be. It was very surreal. Here is... You know, our downtown with, you know, fairly pedestrian space and nothing really happens that turned into a war zone that somebody fired a gun five feet from me. Um, I didn't even know he had fired it. Uh, I was trying to focus on something else and I heard a pop and I looked up from my camera and I realized actually after looking at it that what I, I didn't get in focus what I was hoping to, but I got in focus a guy firing a gun. Um, that, that, that something very strange had happened. And that was also our realization that we were at some sort of a watershed moment in, I don't know, our, at least our recent history and the fact that Charlottesville keeps on coming up in the news. And when you get on a plane now and you tell people where you're from, uh, they have a point of reference. Um, I'm going to share this. And it's kind of funny. I've looked at this whole event probably at least a hundred times and I'm probably getting some sort of a, uh, uh, I don't know, some sort of a syndrome out of it because it was enough to witness it once. It's the problem with taking on a project like this. Next time I said I'm going to do a movie about puppies. Um, actually when I made that comment at uh, the Q&A after we originally showed it somebody even took that to task. Um, So here's this, and this really uh, gives a feeling for what it was like, and then I'll just discuss a little bit of what this clip also means. What they started to do is they formed shield formations, they formed a wedge, they left the park, charged at people, retreated by going up the other entrance. <laughs> And they did this for about an hour.
church was punched full in the face. Uh, in front of police officers, went up to them. That man assaulted me, got the palace guard stare. Anybody who says that there was no standover is being incredibly deceitful. So what I find interesting, I mean, I make other films and other documentaries, and that's all real time. Um, and to me, it, it shows a couple different pieces. And again, as an archival piece, I mean, we didn't know what was going to be done with this, but we figured somebody would better pull all this together and put it in one place at one time. But it shows context, and it shows also escalation. It also shows whether the police... You know, for that full five minutes of a street brawl, did anything. Um, it also, uh, right now, we, we live in a world of questionable truths. Um, you have people like Giuliani talking about, you know, well, some truths are not truths, or my truths, or your truths. Talk about fake news. Um, so, a lot of it is an attempt to show reality. Uh, I think we kind of all live in different bubbles. I've got my Facebook feed of admittedly liberal news and things like that, and I've got conservative friends who have theirs, and, and we have this growing divide of what our worldview is according to what information we take in. So this was an attempt, and even for me to remove my own liberal bias from it, to say is can I create something that all audiences can view and actually this has been viewed by conservative audiences, liberal audiences and somewhat to the film's credit that most of them find it educational that they can actually sit back and say well let's agree that what we saw is what we saw where do we go from there um, another piece within it is that not only are there racial and religious conflicts happening, the ideological ones, there's a growing one that we discovered as we witnessed the footage that a lot of this was a battle between fascism and communism. A very strange thing when you look at some of the footage you see fascist flags but you also see communist flags and when conservatives say well what about fighting the commies and my liberal friends say what are you talking about I can say well let's look at it. What was happening visually there. Um, as a filmmaker, I found a certain responsibility within this and an obligation. I kind of regret it. It was not a fun year. I've taken a lot of crap for it. I've gotten two death threats. Um, one of the people working on my film had their brake lines cut. Um, but I hope that it is an opportunity for discussion. Um, and I hope that's what it might be going forward. This is one of many. A lot of people are doing documentaries with a lot more production value. We had the opportunity here of being the local people and trying to get this story as factual as possible um, because I think that discussion uh, needs to be part of this solution and that discussion has to be based on some agreement of reality. Thanks. open it up for Q&A in just a moment. I did want to first ask our panelists um, 
about the outreach part of this panel, um, what you do to bring your materials and collections to the attention of the communities who created them um, and incorporating their cultural frameworks within your work. And if you have sort of comments of your particular practice and how that relates to working with communities. Uh, speaking about the hip hop collection at Cornell, what we did was that we fundraised to get a position for an assistant curator whose job is basically nothing but community outreach and creating uh, community outreach programs. And it's been unbelievably successful. I think in the past year, he did like 150 events, which is pretty cool. For us, I think that outreach or engagement is obviously very critical to what we do as an organization. You know, I think for us, in some ways, it interrogates at its very core the idea of what it means to provide access. Um, when we started out, I think for Michelle and myself, one of the ideas, that we, one of the thoughts that we had was, oh, you know, our responsibility when, is to make these materials accessible, put these materials online, and then how they get used is really beyond the scope of what we do. But as time has gone on, certainly um, in the last 10 years, become very evident that access really goes beyond just putting things online. It's really about how you make those histories, those materials, those stories um, relevant, how you make them part of everyday conversations, how you make them part of people's lives. And so, I, you know, so many of the products in the highlight really are about that, really are thinking of how these histories, these stories are about, about the present and about the future. About half of film production work is distribution. Um, as much as effort that we put into making this movie, probably have to do at least as much, if not more, to get it somewhere. And it really hasn't gone too far. Um, there are a lot of other things that people are interested in watching. Um, but I will say that some of the intention of this was for Charlottesville. And uh, one little anecdote within that, uh, we showed a couple of screenings, free screenings at the Jefferson Center here in Charlottesville. And uh, after it, a parent came to said he and his son had been at the event uh, and that the son didn't want to talk about it for months and came to the screening and finally opened up. And so I think hopefully there was some sort of, at least it's not closure, it's not necessarily even healing, but as an opportunity to continue this discussion of something and, and whatever purpose, if just making that movie was about that one kid, then it was worthwhile. Great, thank you. So I'd like to open up the Q&A to the audience. So we have two people with microphones on either end, if you can alert them to your presence. Because 
I just, uh, not a cent is being on this. Um, the amount of hours that put into it, and all the other kind of attributes when you have a piece like this, updating a website and things, I have honestly not kept up with as I should. I mean, I'm working on a project now about indigenous dance you know, in world culture, so I'm like, okay, well, do I stay on this, or can I move on to something else that actually brings people together? Um, but I will work on that. First, I just want to thank everyone for your um, presentation. I thought it was very informative. Um, I have a question about um, Charlottesville. Can you talk a little bit about the process of how you were able to connect with the community to share some of the tweets and the, the um, phone captures and all that? Talk about how you were able to actually do that to bring the um, movie together. We had a big solicitation right afterward. I mean, it was about two weeks after I had this footage. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And a uh, guy, Jackson Landers, who's a local uh, journalist um, who had been up on the front lines of all this and had been covering uh, neo-Nazi uh, issues uh, nationally, he approached me and said, I know you were there, I know you got footage, let's do something with it. Um, we started talking to the other people, so many of you had footage, we reached out to the activist community to see what we could get. We put out public calls, I had a couple um, uh, opportunities for people to come and do interviews. Also, we looked at different areas where we knew we had sort of holes in our own narrative, even second guess ourselves, and reached out to the religious community um, and further. And, and there were other, there was a very challenging thing because some people did not want us to make this movie and said, do not cooperate with them because a lot of people did not want an objective talent. Um, and they said, we want just, you know, what we all think it was, and why don't you go away? And I unfortunately don't react great to that kind of criticism, and I go, well, can we just try to get close to the truth, if there is a truth? And if the closer we can get, the more collaboration needs to happen. And other people are doing their own projects. Some of them said, like, you shouldn't do it. Well, you go do your own. We can all do a project on this. I don't know. Um, but it's, and it is an ongoing. We had added uh, little pieces that went up to New York a couple months ago and added another piece. But um, you can keep on working on this thing forever. One thing, too, that was important was to keep the scope of it narrow. Because people say, well, why don't you talk about what happened before it? And then what's happening after? I'm like, yeah, you can do a ten-part series on this, but it was almost a, an exercise. And let's just look at the events of that day. And but one thing we did, we just looked at the day before um, at the torch rally at UVA, and we looked at uh, there was a, uh, a candlelit vigil at UVA afterward. And we included that sort of as bookends to allow some of the context, but the rest of it outside of it was a lot of assumptions. And we didn't want to go there. We want to say, what can we prove happened? I have a question about Sada. Um, in terms of your outreach, uh, we heard earlier from history makers that were like losing the history of the 20th century. And, um, are you prioritizing or are you prioritizing your outreach to capture the stories and narratives? 
of those elders in our community. Because um, I looked at that, those first days and the time scales are shifted to the right for more recent history versus the 50s um, and 60s generations where we had a lot of those student associations bringing people over. So I was wondering how you were approaching that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when we started SADA, our priorities in some ways were on the pre-1965 period, as, as many of you probably know, the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act is what really transformed American society and made it what it is in some ways today in terms of allowing immigrants from, from Asia, from Africa, from Latin America, and across the world to come to the United States in large numbers. And so my family, for example, came after the 1965 Immigration Act. But as I was talking about in my presentation, you know, a lot of the early histories of South Asians date back to the late 1800s, even earlier than that, in fact. But we had material history from the late 1800s onwards. And so when we started SADA, a big part of our priority was collecting those pre-1965 histories because those seemed the rarest and most difficult to access. And so if you visit the archive now, yeah, a lot, a lot of significant percentage are pre-1965. But one of the things that I found is that is it's um, in some ways even more challenging to tell the story after 1965 because the community gets so large and, and so quickly. And so um, you know, to try to reflect both the diversity of the community and the richness of the history um, is, is quite a challenge, and I think we're trying to think creatively about how to do that. So the First Days Project is one example where it's um, a participatory project, so anyone can go to the First Days Project website and submit their story as audio, video, or text. The Road Trip Project is the same way. And so trying to create basically parameters that open up the doors of the archive to community members to submit their stories directly, and that's the approach that we've taken, is really trying to be open and transparent in the work that we do and, and make it easy, as, as easy as possible. Hi, so this question is for Brian. Um, so I was actually there on the weekend on this fall working with the vault with the volunteers as well. Uh, I was there for 39 hours straight, uh, 39 hour shift. And I'm one of those people that definitely if you told me or you told me about this, I would have said I would want to see I would have to relive through that. Um, and honestly I stayed in the rest of the two more months before I just couldn't take so my question to you is, having to relive those events over and over again, and having people tell you that you know they didn't want this movie to be made, how did you manage to keep yourself motivated, and how did you convince uh, others to open up with their stories? I'm really stubborn. Um, <laughs> I worked in journalism for a while. Actually, uh, part of my motivation for journalism, I married a woman from Yugoslavia. And uh, six months after I went to Belgrade on my honeymoon, we bought it. And we said awful things about the people who were Serbian, but probably not in line with Milosevic and other things. Um, and I actually followed a guy named Paul Watson who wrote the Yellow Times. And uh, I found that the news was not the news. That, that not only is their spin, some of it is fake news. And to try to really have a handle on what's happening in the world and important things, as crazy as you know, the Balkan conflict is, as crazy as our issues are here, that we have to have a basis in some form of reality. And I, I, I didn't want to assert any ego within this. Um, I really wanted to take my name and myself out of it. Um, and 
probably was healthy for me because I, I, I think that while I witnessed it, it kind of went into a surreal something else. Now it's kind of something to know this is, and, and to know that this is a small fraction of what can happen. That you can tear yourself apart like the Balkans did. And that place became an absolute bloodbath between ideologies. And to know that, to say that that is not going to happen here, I think, um, is problematic to me with the possibility of, of human awful behavior is. And that's, that's what I witnessed on that day. I also saw a lot of wonderful human behavior and compassion as well. And to try to actually give breath to each of those, the people who volunteered and the people who, there was a great story within it of a woman who gave medical care at, in one of the tents. And at one point, uh, they brought somebody in who was bleeding and blinded, whatever. And it turned out he was, this was a Black Lives Matter tent. And the guy was one of the leaders of the alt-right. And at the point when he got his eyes cleared, realized where he was, he kind of freaked out. And she just said, just think of me like Switzerland. You know, I'm just here to help you. And there was a moment of connection there. And it was because of those caregivers that they were allowed to be able to break that narrative for that individual who could say, you're Black Lives Matter people, you hate me. I say, no, there's a, a possibility for compassion and that, that breaks the narrative. That's where I see hope. That's why I'm so thankful for the people who did come and, and, and were present there and helped support whatever possibility that we want to see going forward with this. So I thank you for being there. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I would go on this August in Europe when these events resurface. But I think it's important for all of us to be present in one way or another, whatever capacity that we have ourselves. I'm a filmmaker. This is what I do. I have a friend who's a musician. He played on that day and his music comforted others. People gave medical care because they're medical people. So we all do what we can. So that's why I did it. I'd like to thank the panel very much. It's always good to have that to be right after lunch. You did a great job. Archives are never complete, and I was wondering if each of the panelists could speak to some of the silences in the archives or projects they've worked on, maybe some of the things that they wish they had access to that they didn't. Uh, Garrick Beck, who is one of my heroes, uh, he's the son of Judith Molina and Julian Beck, the founders of the Living Theater. And Garrick is the founder of the Rainbow Gathering, which is a yearly hippie gathering that's been going on for almost 50 years, where they do a sustainable version of Burning Man. So they uh, gather like fruit and vegetables and cook for everybody. They build clay ovens to bake bread. Uh, they pull in water on vines from like different brooks in the area, and then everybody trips balls and dances naked and does drum circles and does like terrible street theater or whatever it is. Um, uh, I worked on Garrick's archive, which was absolutely fascinating. And one day in the middle of a conversation, he says, an archive traces an arc across time. It shows an act of actions that sets a stage and how those acts mark the time from one era into the next. 
So after that knowledge was dropped on me, I had to sit down for a few minutes. Uh, and what that cured was what my favorite historian, Piero Camporesi, who was a professor of history at the University of Bologna, refers to as the dreadful desire to study. When you think if you only find this one more photographer or this one, one more stack of oral histories or this one marginal poetry publication, then the archive is complete. Voila, fantastic. So then I'll take it from Piero Camparesi to Bart Simpson, who uh, in an episode of The Simpsons, Marge is trying to find a moral to a story. And she keeps on starting over and over again. The moral to the story is, the moral to the story is, and then Bart looks at her and goes, there's no moral to the story. It was just a bunch of stuff that happened. So I am unbelievably grateful for every single archive that is a work in progress. And I'm also happy when there is no end game. And since I trained as a historian, I often, when you know, I'm, I meet pioneers from the hip hop movement or people who were involved in the beats in the 50s, because you know my specialty is the post World War II field. Um, when they are trying to look for meaning in the artifacts that they kept or the records that they kept or what survived, they're like, well, who's going to be looking at this? Then I have to go right back to Richard Ovenden and his buddies at the bottom. It's too early to say. We might not know now, we might understand 200 years from now or 400 years from now, but if we don't go out and gather the artifacts in a thorough and methodical way, as we see and identify them, then there's nothing for scholars to argue about 200 years from now. <laughs> you know, Sada was an archive that started recognizing the absence, which is that, you know, um, Recognize that South Asian American histories weren't being systematically collected and preserved by their institutions, like I mentioned. Um, but I think that you know, all archives, as you guys pointed out, have gaps uh, and should be, I think, in a process of constant um, interrogation, constant looking inward and seeing what those gaps may be. I think that um, I recognize there's so many ways that Sada as an archive falls short in reflecting the, the community. For example, which is killer. And then people can build, and it can snowball and continue to build once all of us are on the way of the building. I mean, that's wonderful. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and yet, I think that, you know, if, if you ever get to this point where you begin to think that you've, you've done the job, like you said, right? Like, and so I think, so yeah, and so, you know, I think, and in some ways, it's important for there to be critiques both from inside the archive and from outside the archive, right? I think that's what is most productive when those outside of any institution, the community archive or not, External critique, especially critique from the community, is like the best thing ever. Even if it's super harsh, it's wonderful. Because it completely opens the playing field to other directions that the archive can take and other ideas and other manners of how to pursue this expansion of knowledge that is the purpose of all this. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there was a, a, a section of footage that we wanted to put in the movie that couldn't. Um, a lot of it was about releases and what liabilities you set yourself up for if you don't have all the releases that you need. Um, there was a guy, Red Mage, on YouTube who had a lot of footage from behind the scenes of the Albright 
he is an alt-right dude, you know, the dinner salutes and whatever, but it was kind of fascinating to watch his footage and, and then following it. And at one point he said we could use it, but he didn't like sign the thing, so we couldn't exactly, so we like, kept dancing around it. But there, there was a chance at one point when um, it was after an incident in a parking garage that these guys marched off into the like, neighborhoods, and a lot of people were saying, Different nature, 
And she saw her, and she somebody take a picture of her with these guys. And she was all bandaged up and smiling, and there were these guys in camo smiling. And that picture they reproduced on a somebody's platter, and they were shouting her name. They'd drawn a Nazi mustache on her. And it was interesting just to see how somebody can take something out of context and totally turn it around into something that it wasn't. So as I kind of met all these different people who had been involved in the documenting of this, to hear their individual stories of their own story of whereabouts. Some of them have been docs. Some of them have had death threats. Some of them whatever. And so within this, now there's sort of almost this, this, this unity of all these different documentarians now splintering off into other places and following the story. And we have a collective understanding of the absurdity of it. It's hard to express that to the, the greater population of the complexity of this story. But I think as an archivist, and this is an ongoing archival process, and that archive is you, uh, that to try to understand the totality of this also involves understanding the stories of the people who are collecting it. And so we are out of time, so I'm gonna stop you there. Please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>